0: This day has been decades in the making, and it's significant because, you know, a number of churches have been founded by former UBC members and UBC staff over the years. I can think of fellowship, you can think of New Heights, but I'm not sure UBC has ever intentionally planted a church. So in our nearly 70-year history, right, today is a first so it's a big day for us as, as members of UBC, and it's a big day for Trey and for Kristen. You know, they've spent, you all, what, the last six years or so praying for this day, preparing for this day, working toward uh, this day, and it has finally arrived. We're getting to celebrate that together, and one of my greatest joys in pastoral ministry genuinely has been to witness Trey grow as a shepherd over these last number of years. So I've had a front row seat working with Trey to his various personalities. Of which he has become famous and, and well known for. So there's the, right, there's the jokester Kappa Sig Trey that some of us knew better in years past. There is the sort of comedian college ministry Trey that we've got to appreciate. There's the playful out of town Trey. And if you've not experienced that, you've just tried to take a trip. Uh, with with Trey, um, there is the serious and ever contemplative sermon prep Trey, when he is getting ready for Sunday messages. But perhaps what I've witnessed and enjoyed most is watching the faithful shepherd Trey. What the Lord has done in these last number of years, brother, in building you into a faithful pastor and instructor of God's word. It's been beautiful to watch. It's been so fun to witness. And Kristen, the same. The way you've grown in these last number of years, the way you are increasingly discipling women and pouring into women and becoming more confident in your ability to instruct them in God's word and to teach them God's word, it's been a beautiful thing to see. And it's a big day, of course, for Ozark Baptist church, right? This is, after all, this is your covenanting service. Today, you officially become a congregation. You officially become a spiritual family together. Tonight, this afternoon, however we want to describe this time, right before five o'clock, right? You are becoming an outpost of the King an embassy of heaven, a light in the midst of darkness. It's another place of rest being established here on that road to eternal life. And together as a spiritual community, that's what we're celebrating tonight. And it's actually this topic of community that I want us to think about a bit more uh, from our passage in Acts 2 this morning. That's what we're gonna be considering. And as we do so, let me just pray that God would encourage us as we come to his word. Oh God, we give you praise. You give your word to us as your people. That's your kindness, that you are not a God who is silent, but you are a God who speaks, who reveals yourself to us, and who instructs us in the word. And God, we pray that as we open your word, we might be conformed to it. We might submit to it. We might see glorious things in it and be challenged and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, community has been sadly disappearing before our eyes. You know, it's been 20 years now since Harvard uh, political scientist Robert Putnam, he published his seminal work, some of you may be familiar with it, Bowling Alone, the Collapse and Revival of the American Community. And in that book, Putnam noted how more and more Americans, more than ever, were bowling, and yet they weren't bowling in leagues, They were bowling alone, such that a whole generation could grow up watching the sitcom Friends and yet not have any real friends. And our dependence on isolating technology and on social media as that dependence has deepened, especially during COVID, I think this challenges to community have only accelerated such that basic societal structures, whether or not we're talking about the family, Right, to the community center, to the corner church, they're all eroding, disintegrating, on the edge of extinction, some will say. So according to, to the Barna Group, church attendance following the pandemic has, has declined 30 to 50 percent. Now, in response to trends like this, churches, of course, what have they sought to do? They've, they've sought to emphasize community. Community's been a big buzzword. Uh, no doubt in your own prepping and gatherings and core team meetings, you've probably talked a good bit about community. And those in sort of the church growth community will talk about the kind of community you need. You need raw community. You need authentic community. You need real community, right? None of the saccharine stuff. And that's what they'll focus on. And yet, sadly, when they go to, implement this kind of community when they try to think about it together in their gatherings they will often undermine the very community they desire by their own practices such that many buildings have done away with the corporate pew in favor of the private chair no judgment on these chairs but it's just something you'll something you'll see these days lights are often dimmed so we can tune others out and instead in those dim lights we can focus on our own internal experience Sermons are often geared towards one's private, personal needs. And congregants often are ushered through services like they're at a drive-thru and a fast-food restaurant. At the end of the day, many in churches are merely spectators of a weekend experience. They're consumers of a tailored religious product. And in a world starved of genuine relationships in a world that's disintegrating into factions and into anti-tribes friend is that the best that christianity has to offer is that the best it has to offer a sunday morning or afternoon drive through jesus religious entertainment masquerading as worship a crowd awkwardly pretending to be a community you who are covenanting this afternoon as Ozark Baptist Church, is that all you'll have to offer as a community? Or would you like to offer something more? Would you like to be something more? Well, that's what I want us to be thinking about from Acts 2 42 to 47. So if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there. Acts 2 verses 42 to 47. And as you turn, if you're new to the book of Acts, Jesus promised that he would build his church. And Acts is the record of really Jesus making good on that promise. But in order to do so, we see in Acts 1, Jesus must first ascend into heaven so that the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, can descend and empower his people. And in Acts 2, 1 to 13, the event of Pentecost, of the Holy Spirit coming down, is described for us. And then really in two fourteen through 41, we have Peter's explanation of that event with really a stirring sermon from Joel chapter 2. And if you have perhaps come this afternoon and, and don't identify as a Christian, let me encourage you after the service to, to go look at those verses uh, in Peter's sermon from Joel 2, because that really gets to the heart of the good news that we have as Christians. And that good news is that Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is indeed the son of God. And he came, Jesus did, because all of us have in fact rebelled against God. Every one of us have chosen our way and not God's ways. In small things and in big things, that's merely what the Bible means when it calls us sinners. And Peter talks about how Christ came to die for sinners in the place of sinners and then rose from the grave as that sacrifice that was a pleasing offering unto God so that all of us who would turn from our sin, repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins And we can be reconciled to God. That right there is the good news of Christianity. That's the sermon Peter preached. And yet, the the new community that heard the sermon, it's a revival that breaks out. So as you keep reading, 3,000 people responded to the sermon. Imagine next week. You preaching, 3,000 people breaking out. Right? That's what happened there in Jerusalem. 3,000 repent and believe. They're baptized. They're brought into the church. It's a promising start to this community. But what will be the effects? Right? Will there be anything distinct, anything unique, anything compelling about this community that's going to mark them? That's what 242 through 47 is all about. So as you all are using at OBC, the Christian Standard Bible, let me just read from the CSB. Acts 242. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Friends, what a beautiful picture right there we get of Christian community, right? There's worship and there's fellowship. There's prayer and there's provision. There's generosity and there's growth. So it's no wonder these verses have captivated Christian communities for centuries. Friends, what does it teach about truly spiritual community? I think most simply, what we're seeing here is that truly spiritual community is supernatural community. That's the basic thing we're seeing. Truly spiritual community is supernatural community. But that supernatural community, I think, is, is seen... In three distinct marks, and I think those marks were just going to serve as our outline this afternoon. These three distinct marks. It's a glorifying community. It's the first thing I think we see. It's a giving community, secondly. And it's a growing community, thirdly. A glorifying community, a giving community, a growing community. So first, let's think. It's a glorifying community. It's a glorifying community. In the sense that this community is, is aimed at glorifying God. So many have recognized verse 42, I think rightly, as a description of corporate worship, as what these Christians did as they gathered together, much like we're gathering right now. Right? There's teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread, which often in Luke is used as sort of a technical term to describe the Lord's Supper. And he'll refer here to prayer or to the prayers. And in context, I think referring here to corporate prayers, Prayers when the people gather, such that, verse 46, they're meeting together later in the temple. And in all this, verse 47, what are they doing? They're praising God. Right? It's a glorifying community. That's the picture we're seeing. There's energy, there's life, there's vitality. These weren't merely half-hearted worshipers. They didn't m- merely roll in right, on a Sunday afternoon and, and kind of mindlessly go through the motions. No, there was, there was even something electric about their own gatherings, unique and distinct. And what was it? Well, verse 42, one of the first things we see is that they devoted themselves. We'll see to what in a moment, but just that word devoted themselves right there, stronger than our English expression devoted. It speaks both to their passion and their perseverance. They were committed in everything and devoted in everything. Two, as we're going to see the apostles teaching. Now, in the days of international travel, before COVID, we as a family, uh, the wheelers, were blessed to be able to go take a trip to France. And if you know anything about the French, they're passionate about a number of things, one of which is food. And so, while we were there, we were able to take a class on cooking, and there was the, the croissant. I'm not going to pronounce it right. I took Spanish, right? I didn't take French. But I would say croissant. And they're like, "No, no, 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 that's not how you pronounce it. It's it's croissant." And we're like, "Okay, whatever." But for them, they're passionate about their croissant. The, the turned edges, right? You've got that nice, crispy, flaky outer layer. You've got that soft, buttery middle. And in the class, our kids were working to try and prepare it, and the constant refrain of this little French instructor was, no, 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 no not like this, not like this, no, 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 not like that. It's like this. Always correcting, making little changes because they are fiercely devoted to their food and getting their distinct French food just right. Friends, we're all devoted, point being, to something. It could be to Arkansas sports. It could be to that hobby that demands and requires all of your extra time, your free time over the weekends and evenings. It could be a job that you have. We all give ourselves to something. Friend, I wonder what your life reveals and what your own calendar reveals about your devotions. Because these Christians were devoted, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. That's how they were known, as those devoted to the apostles' teaching, right? The Holy Spirit opened up a Bible school in Jerusalem that day, 3,000 enrolled, and they gave themselves to the studies of the scriptures. Their old devotions and passions, they didn't hold the same appeal. They didn't care about whether or not the fish were biting down on the white, They didn't care about how the Hogs were playing or they win in bowl games or keep losing SEC basketball games. Like that wasn't their primary concern. Latest in fashion trends, fancy cars, right? That wasn't what consumed them. They had new devotions because through their spirit, they have been given new desires. So don't miss this. Evidence of the spirit in one's life is witnessed by a desire to sit under the instruction of the word you know so often spirituality as we talk about spirituality it is presented as a kind of anti-intellectual mysticism where there is not patience for arguments and logic and for propositional statements But that's not true according to Luke, right? These individuals are devoted to instruction, not simply lots of stories, not simply fun anecdotes, not just creative illustrations, but apostolic doctrine. That's what they gave themselves to. So a lack of patience for teaching. When you're quickly bored, when you find that your constant instinct is to reach for the phone, in order to pass the time, friends, that's not a healthy sign. Which means, instead, that according to Luke, what we're seeing is that those who are immersed in the Spirit and those who are devoted to this Spirit, who possess the Spirit, are equally immersed and devoted to the Scriptures. Which means healthy congregations will crave a healthy diet of sound doctrine because it's the spirit of God that leads the people of God to submit to the word of God through the teachers of God because friends, that's just the design of God. That's how we built it. That's how we created it. So to Ozark Baptist, right, speaking to you as a congregation this afternoon. You know, church planting consultants will tell you that what you most need in a planting pastor is a young man who can plant vision. you got to have a guy who can motivate the masses, right? That's what you need. Or maybe you need a man with great charisma who can captivate with stories. Or you need a man who's relatable, one who's relational, who's, who's really good with people, and as a bonus, if he looks the part, right, handsome family and all, right? There you go. Like, you've got the whole deal. All those things, friends, are fine. They're all fine. But the primary job as a pastor is to say again what God has already said. It's that simple. The primary job of a pastor is simply to say again what God has already said. Because while we create with hands and shovels and bulldozers, God creates with words. He creates with words, which is why God's word must always lie at the centerpiece of your services, your weekly assemblies. You know, the word, it's it's been cold. Not today, but it's been cold. And what do you want to do in a cold day? You want to gather around the hearth. You want to gather around the center of that room where there's the fireplace, where it's warm. The word is like that hearth and winter. Where you all come and you gather and you circle around the center of that fire to receive warmth and comfort and respite and encouragement. That's how the word ought to function in the corporate life of a church. You gather around it like we are now to warm ourselves, to to warm our own affections, to rekindle our passions, to revive our souls so that we can enter out into the bitter cold of the week. Which means, Trey, this is just a good reminder for you, brother, that the supernatural life-giving power of God's word, that too needs to be the center of your ministry These people, there are lots of things that are already clamoring for your time. I got to spend 30 minutes with Trey before the start of the service. Lots of things pressing in as they will on a planting pastor, demanding time. Visitors need follow up, websites need updating, nursery workers need training, flyers need distributing. Right? You just keep going on and on. All these things demand time. But, brother, first and foremost, your job is to preach. That's what you have to do. Give yourself to this word. It's as important as swimming is to a lifeguard, as throwing is to a quarterback, as numbers are to an accountant. It defines the very task of what a pastor does. So you may know that when I was installed uh, as an elder at UBC, the pastor who installed me had this to say, which created a little bit of a stir amongst some of the members, but I think it's useful, so I'm going to repeat it. He said, all those other things, visitor ministry, children's ministry, all of them, they can fail. Every ministry in the church can fail except for the preaching of God's word. Now, hopefully, they all won't fail, right? You've got excellent people around you that can help you and encourage you. Hopefully, you won't. But this church can't flourish. No Christian church can flourish apart from the faithful preaching of God's word. It just can't happen. So, brother, give yourself to it. Give the best of yourself to it. Give the best of your working hours to it. Don't get cute with the word. That might be a temptation. You can be cute sometimes. Don't get cute with it, right? That can distract from the word. Ministers should be stars that give light, not clouds that obscure. And the words are beloved Charles Bridges. Aim for thoughts that breathe and words that burn. Ozark Baptist pray for Trey in this. Pray for all of those beyond Trey who were involved in the ministry of the word here. Right? Recognize that your future as a congregation, it depends upon it. It depends upon it. But not only do they give themselves these new disciples and converts to apostolic teaching, but also they give themselves in fellowship. They are fans of God's word, and because they are, they become, as a consequence, family very much to one another. Not merely because they sit under the same teaching every week, though it's true, but because they're living out that teaching together throughout the remainder of their week. Part of what we're seeing is how they glorify God as well through the breaking of bread, through prayer. So Luke has in mind, likely here, not just any meal, but the Lord's Supper, that expression, the breaking of bread, as I noted often for Luke, is a reference to the Lord's Supper, and especially depending upon context, and here we're talking about the corporate services. And friends, the Lord's Supper, recognize when you take it here in just a few minutes, it is how a church communes with Christ and with one another. As they commemorate Christ's death together, as they covet his return together, and as they commit themselves to his body together, you know, as one author helpfully put it, the, uh, the apostles preached to the ear about Jesus and the table preaches to the eye about Christ. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, you know, recognize what we're not doing is we're not just having a supercharged quiet time. We're not just having our own personal private moment with Jesus. No, instead, we are proclaiming our union with Christ and our union and our communion with one another. And that union is underscored in how these individuals prayed together. It seems these prayers are not merely spontaneous prayers, or not just small group prayers per se, but, but corporate, even a bit more formal. So in the original language, first sort of to the prayers, it seems there were distinct, specific prayers in mind, which is why as a church, it is good, as you're already beginning to do, to carve out time to pray. Friends, that's what spiritual people do. They pray. When God's people gather, prayer shouldn't be the casual afterthought. It shouldn't be the filler between music sets. Because truly, spiritual communities are praying communities. Now, my former pastor also gave me this counsel. I'll pass it on to you all as well at OBC. He said to me, Brad, pray so often in your services that nominal Christians become bored talking to the God they only claim to believe in. He said, don't be bothered by that. Let them get bored. Real, genuine Christians will love it and will cherish it. Because friends, we don't live by intuition, right? We live by the Lord's direction and the Lord guides and directs through his word and through prayer. So OBC, will this be the kind of glorifying worship that characterizes your community together? where doctrine is deep and fellowship is still deeper, where the Lord's su- Supper is celebrated and where prayers together are richly offered, where there is a sense of reverential awe and not merely light and momentary amusement. Friends, pray for it because that's what true spiritual community is. And try as, as it might, the world recognize the world can't replicate this. The world also can't ignore it. But they can sit in awe of it, as we see from verse 33, and they can be drawn to it. So, friends, strive after this, even as you pray for this kind of community amongst you. But not only are they glorifying communities. Secondly, just notice they're giving communities. They're giving communities. That's part of what Luke is noting in verses 44 and following. So if 42 sort of describes their corporate life together, I think verse 44 begins to mark this transition into some of what described their, their personal, individual lives together. This act of selling possessions and property, for example, that's what they would have done as individuals. And they wouldn't have done that in their corporate assembly, um, but that's what they would have done in their daily lives and shared that in their daily lives. There is, of course, that expression, verse 46, every day speaking to their, what, their daily lives together. And what marked them? Well, we read, verse 44, now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So notice verse 44, all who believed had, verse 45, all, or rather verse 44, all who believed had what? All in common, verse 45, and distributed to all, to any that had need. That's pretty radical spiritual community right there. So radical that this is going to make some of us, right, who live in a a capitalist society, we're like, "Eh, what's going on, right? It makes a little uncomfortable, this kind of community. Now, I don't think he's advocating a kind of socialism or communism. This is all voluntary. It's not obligatory. We could get into a long aside upon that. I'm going to pass. But there is an unmistakable call to radical generosity. And that should mark all Christian communities the church is a family and what do healthy families do they care for one another i wonder my christian friend are you generous towards god's people like this or do you read these verses and think ah it's just that spiritual community i've never seen and have not known or been a part of and hasn't defined me you know the apostle paul doesn't say work hard so that you can enjoy the american dream of having larger homes and lake boats and the like. Those things can be fine, especially when shared. But if that's the only thing we're working toward, ah, we're missing something in the scriptures. That's not what we're called to. We're called to work hard so that we may have something to share with anyone in need, Ephesians 4.28. So I wonder if you plan your financial life to have extra in need for others. Or do you, so to speak, reap to the edge of your fields, spending all that you have on yourself? I trust most of us have budgets. I wonder if you've ever considered having a line in your budget that is merely to bless others. I'm not referring to supporting the work and ministry of the church, right? We're all called to do that. I mean something separate and in addition to that, just to be a blessing to other members of the congregation. I mean, think how much fun it would be, even if you just had $50 a month to put into a line where you get to strategically work to think, okay, how could I encourage another member of this church? Maybe a young family. I'm gonna pay for a a sitter so they can go on a date. Or maybe there's a single woman who doesn't have much and she really needs an oil change. Yeah, I'm gonna gonna take her car and I'm gonna get her an oil change. I mean, how fun would it be? And imagine what the strategizing would be and the joy in actually spending that line each month. Be a great thing to do. Will you commit to being the kind of church family that joyfully meets the needs of the body? But notice it's not just that their wallets and their pocketbooks that are open. It's their homes as well, verse 46. They break bread there in their homes, receiving their food together. In that context, I think there he's just Luke's referring to, to meals in particular. And, and why do they have these meals together? Well, it's because they value people over simply possessions. They value the spread of the gospel and encouragement in the gospel over the preservation of their own stuff. They value the spiritual fellowship that meals can afford more than whether or not the dish is perfect or more than whether or not the house is tidy and perfect and in order. So recently my wife and I were just looking at our calendar and we're like, oh, we actually have a Sunday coming up where we don't have anyone planned to be over. And so I thought, all right, so we, we thought about it, prayed, we, we reached out, I reached out to an older saint of the church, and just said, hey, love to have you over this Sunday, we've got some leftovers from New Year's, love to have you come. Well, she showed up on Sunday, and we pulled the leftovers out, they were great, but I mean, they're leftovers, we pulled all the dishes out, we laid them out, and I just looked at her, and I said, hey, here's a plate, like dig in, there's the microwave. And she laughed, and looked at me a little amused, because she thought I was kidding, when I said, come over for leftovers, this woman knows how to throw like a world-class party. And this was not that obviously. Uh, and so she sort of chuckled and laughed and realized, no, we were dead serious. It's, it's truly leftovers. And, you know, we sat down, but I'll tell you this, we would not have had that meal if we had to pull out Crystal in China and make a whole new meal. Like we just wouldn't have happened. And in God's providence, that sister was with us for an hour and a half in a hard season of her life, and she was able to share a good bit, and we had wonderful fellowship, and she wrote a note and kind of joked about the leftovers, but it meant the world to her, and it would not have happened if we had to sort of do it out perfectly and right. That doesn't mean your house is trashed, and you're like, "I'll oh, you eat whatever you want, you know, and you throw some bread and peanut butter at them, but, you know, there's, it's good to do some hospitality, but it doesn't have to be exquisite and extravagant. It can be simple. It can be plain. The point is being not fancy. The point is just being faithful and having one another in our own homes. So friends, will such hospitality mark you all as a congregation? Because here's the danger. It is always easier to love the idea of community more than the individuals in your community. Always easier to love that idea more than the actual individuals. But truly, spiritual communities are giving communities, beginning with those in their own spiritual family. But lastly and thirdly, I want you to just notice they're not just glorifying communities and giving communities. They are growing communities too. That's the third mark. They are growing communities. We notice the, the fruit of their living, verse 47, was part they were enjoying the favor of all the people because when we corporately glorify God as we're intended to and we individually give to, to one another as we're meant to, the world can't help but take notice, you know, in 125, there was a man named Aristides who, who wrote to the Roman Emperor Hadrian. And he was trying to explain to the Roman Emperor why it was that Christianity, despite great oppression, continued to spread. And this is what, this is what he said to the Emperor. He said, through love, they persuade all to become Christians, slave or free. And they call them brethren without distinction. They go their way in modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They care for the widow. They deliver the orphaned. And whenever the poor passes from the world, each one of them gives heed to him and carefully sees his burial. And if there is any among them, any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the need their lack of food. Right, what a beautiful description right there of this kind of glorifying and giving community. While non-Christians may not find the gospel we preach attractive, they should find undeniably attractive the grace and generosity that arise, the kind of living that arises out of this gospel. Thus we read verse 47 that every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The Lord here in verse 47 is a reference to the Lord Jesus, right? He, the head of the church, promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And so in the power of the Spirit, we're seeing Jesus right here make good on that very promise to his people. My Christian friend, all faithful ministry is grounded in this confidence that Christ will build his church. And every church plant must have this confidence not necessarily that it will be this church. He will build his church. Not every local individual congregation may thrive and succeed, but he will build his church, and Christ is the one who will do it. Not us, not our programs, not our catchy slogans, not our theatrical performances. That's not what's going to build Christ's church. It's Christ's work because it's his church. We sow, he grows. We preach, he must give the increase. So to think otherwise and to be tempted that in some way the power lies within us, within our own creativity, within our own imagination. It's about skills and tactics. If we become susceptible to that kind of thinking and right words and right moods and, and all the rest, then we turn the grace of God into the gimmicks of men. And we wonder why our ministry has no power, no perseverance, no permanence, Conversion and growth, that is all the Lord's work before it is ever our own work. And notice that Christ did not add them without first saving them. That's something we see very clearly in the preceding verses. He did not add them without first saving them. So there's, the Bible has no concept of nominal Christianity. Nor did he save them without adding them. So there's no solitary Christianity either. Right? The church should be comprised of Christ's people, and all of Christ's people should congregate in a church, because that's how he designed it. And right here already, we're beginning to see the Bible's teaching on regenerate church membership, how those in God's community are saved, and all those who are saved ought to be brought into God's community. Right? Salvation, church membership, those things ought to go hand in hand. It's why, as OBC and as members, you want to be really careful. Who you take into membership. You want to make sure that they possess a credible profession of faith. Because membership in a church its not merely, at the end of the day, just a statement of affection. It's not about duties and privileges and voting rights and those things we can sometimes confuse it with. It's about fundamentally whether or not someone is a citizen of heaven. And whether or not we're going to commit to loving them and seeing them, by the grace of God, get to heaven. It's why if you're here and you're professed to be a follower of Christ, right, you want to most basically evidence that commitment by committing to a church, which is wonderfully what you're doing if you're here for OBC's covenanting service, right? to, to fellowship with Jesus. Friends, community is how we, we started thinking about Acts 2. It's how we opened. A lot of people are still talking about community even more now in these COVID days. Many foretelling the demise of community, or the demise, I should say, of it. But there are very few people who actually have a prescription of how to recover genuine community. And Christians talk about it, right? Authentic community. But I hope you see that the kind of community the Bible talks about is so much more than just coffee and passing conversations after the service. It's more than a small group meeting every number of weeks. The kind of community the Bible portrays is corporate and it's caring It's equally concerned with the worship of God and with the welfare of one another's. It is sticky and it's personal, right? Bibles opened, heads bowed, hearts grateful, hands busy, wallets empty, and lives intertwined. This isn't the kind of community you can artificially create. You can't program it. The spirit, though, can produce it. Glorifying, giving, and by the grace of God, growing communities. Friend, will that describe OBC? Let's pray.